those of you who don't know, Joel and Ethan Cohen are filmmakers. Um, they've written, produced, or directed 17 films since the 1980s. And I'm just going to kick things off with the opening monologue to their 2010 version of True Grit. Just to be working. Sorry for the technical difficulties, guys. We'll just start it here. Went to time to avenge her father's blood, but it did happen. I was just 14 years of age when a coward by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down and robbed him of his life and his horse and two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser band. Cheney was a hired man and Papa had taken him up to Fort Smith to help lead back a string of Mustang ponies he'd bought. In town, and cards, and lost all his money. He got it into his head he was being cheated, and went back to the boarding house for his Henry rifle. When Papa tried to intervene, Cheney shot him. Cheney fled. He could have walked his horse, for not a soul in that city could be bothered to give chase. No doubt Cheney fancied himself scot-free. But he was wrong. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. You must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. I thought of that line a little over a year ago when Hal Merck was up here teaching us about the virtue of justice. He told us about the different forms that justice can take, and he pointed out that the hallmark of all forms of justice is a kind of indebtedness. In a world of competing interests, he said, we are all infringing on one another's rights. We are constantly going in and out of debt to one another. And I immediately thought of that line from True Grit, that we must pay for everything, that there's nothing free except the grace of God. This sent me looking for grace not only in True Grit, but in many of the Coen Brothers films. And it's my privilege to be able to share what I found with you this morning. We'll get back to Maddie Ross and her pursuit of justice for her murdered father. But first, let's take a look at the Coen Brothers themselves. Who are the Coen Brothers? Joel and Ethan Cohen were raised in St. Louis Park, which is a predominantly Jewish um, suburb outside of Minneapolis. They are themselves Jewish. I don't know uh, to what extent they practice their religion or if they do at all, uh, but their Jewish background certainly comes through in their art. Almost all of their films are keenly interested in the theme of human morality, and many of them deal quite explicitly with the religious dimension of human experience. Their films can be very dark, Many times this takes the form of a quirky, if often macabre, black comedy in the vein of Flannery O'Connor. Other times it's just a wide-eyed exploration of the disturbing limits of human brutality and violence. Now, we're we're not going to be able to go through all 17 of their films this morning, but I want to take a look at a representative sample that are particularly meaningful to me. Uh, This is the blanket spoiler alert. Announcement: If you haven't seen these movies and we're hoping not to find out about key plot developments, including how many of them end, you should just leave now because 
we're going to get into it. So the Coen brothers make some pretty dark films. I want to take a look at uh, two in particular, both pretty well-known Academy Award winners um, that sort of exemplify this this darkness uh, that the Coen brothers like to explore. Um, Fargo and No Country for Old Men. Fargo is maybe their best-known movie. It won the Oscar for Best Screenplay in 1996, and Frances McDormand uh, won the Best Actress Award for her role as Marge Gunderson, a seven-month pregnant police officer investigating a triple homicide outside of Brainerd, Minnesota. All of this is the result of a twisted scheme to make a little bit of money. The story kicks off with a mousy and foolish car salesman played by William H. Macy, who's got himself into some financial trouble. And his brilliant solution is to hire two ex-convicts to kidnap his own wife and get his rich father-in-law to pay the ransom, he'll collect the money, pay off the cons, and be able to take care of his debts. It's supposed to be, as he puts it, a no-rough-stuff kind of deal, but it quickly becomes anything but. By the end of the film, the body count is up to six, including the man's wife and father-in-law, and the audience has been dragged through a grim expose on the human capacity for bestial brutality, driven by greed and desperation. But like a ray of light in all this darkness is the character of Marge, the pregnant police officer. She's a constant source of hope. No matter what she encounters, her resolve and cheerfulness remain unfazed, often to humorous effect, given the contrast between her demeanor and the circumstances. But even Marge is affected by the brutality of the situation. I want to play a scene now near the end of the film. Marge has caught up with these kidnappers who are responsible for all the murders, and when she arrives, she's discovered that they've turned on each other. One of them has killed the other. He's in the process of disposing of the body in a wood chipper when she walks up. Um, He tries to flee. She shoots him in the leg, gets him in the back of the squad car, and we're going to watch her conversation with him. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. Three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. Stop it there. 
There's a lot that I love about that scene, but maybe my favorite part is the fact that Marge thinks it's a beautiful day. (laughs) The weather throughout the film is just like that. It's bleak, it's snowy, nothing beautiful about it by most people's estimation, but Marge thinks it's a beautiful day. But it's also clear that Marge is herself at a bit of a loss in this scene. She's trying to make sense of a world in which people could be so vicious to one another, as she puts it, over a little bit of money. She's like a mother giving a child a lecture. And I think we see it dawn on her that maybe this guy really doesn't know that there is more to life than a little bit of money. And you can see that she's trying to process how that kind of moral depravity could even be possible. But she doesn't lose hope. The final scene in the film witnesses Marge and her husband, Norm, in bed. They're ready to turn in for the night. They've just learned that Norm's painting of a mallard duck will be featured on the three-cent stamp. And Marge says, heck, Norm, we've got it pretty good. Norm puts a hand on her pregnant belly and says, two more months. She smiles and repeats it. Two more months. There is light in all this darkness. Marge is going to bring new life into the world in spite of what she's seen and experienced through the course of the film. She's almost an icon of Mary, a vessel of grace in a broken world. But that's Fargo in 1996. Let's fast forward a decade to 2007 uh, with the Coen brothers' No Country for Old Men. This is a much darker film with none of Fargo's comic relief and razor-thin margins for any kind of hope. It's almost as if they've upped the ante on Fargo and are showing us a version of the world in which they dare us to find anything worth hoping for. Like Fargo, the bodies begin to pile up. Um, it's, it starts with a desperate scheme to make some money, gone awry. Um, but this time, there's a more sinister addition in the character of the sociopathic killer, Anton Chigurh played by Javier Bardem. Chigur represents chaos beyond rhyme or reason. He subjects everyone he meets to a coin toss. If you win the coin toss, he leaves you alone, and you're left wondering what that was all about. Guy was kind of creepy. But if you lose, he kills you on the spot and walks away. If the violence in Fargo was brutal and excessive, the motives for it were still somewhat understandable. In no country, we're faced with a violence that is predicated on absolutely nothing but sheer chance. There is nothing to comprehend, which makes it all the more terrifying. Now, the lawman tracking down this killer to put an end to the bloodbath is Ed Tom Bell. He's an older sheriff nearing the end of his career, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Towards the end of the film, Tom meets up with another older police officer, and the two men are commiserating over the state of society. They talk about how money and drugs have eroded the fabric of society and how it's never just the one thing. It's always the dismal tide, as they put it, creeping in and making the country they grew up in unrecognizable to them. This is where the film gets its title. They are trying to enforce the law in a place that no longer seems to be their home. It has become no country for these old men. But when the conversation turns to Shagur, the killer out on the loose, 
the men are completely at a loss. How can you defend against it, they ask. This is an evil utterly beyond comprehension, and the law is powerless to curb it or rein it in. The film doesn't leave us with much hope for this situation. They never do find Shigur. He's involved in a serious car accident at the end of the film, but he walks away from it. A threat to society with every breath he continues to draw. Not only is he evil, he's resilient. In a world where anything good is, by comparison, hopelessly fragile. I want to take a look at the very last scene of this film. Um, Sheriff Bell has retired at this point, and he's telling his wife about a couple of dreams he's just had. All right, then. Two of them. Both have my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by 20 years. So, in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere. He didn't give me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, he just rode on past. He had his blanket wrapped around him with his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire in a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. And that's how the film ends. But that scene is, I think, uh, maybe the only place in the film where we, where we get a glimmer of hope, or it's the hope that the film has to offer. The second dream that uh, Tom Lee Jones' character is telling us about is his father, who is also a lawman. He comes from a long line of, of police officers. And he's riding through the night on horseback. It's like the old Western days. And his father passes him on the trail, and he's carrying fire in a horn. His father rides on ahead out into all that dark and all that cold. And he knows that when he catches up to him, his father will be waiting for him, and he'll have fire. Now, I think the symbolism here is pretty rich. The fire represents a fragile vitality that needs to be preserved. It is faint in all that darkness, but it is the only thing that can sustain these men through the cold, and it is threatened. It is easily snuffed out, it has to be cared for and tended by an older generation preserved for the younger so that when the time is right, it'll be there for them and it can be passed on. This is tradition. This is truth, goodness, and beauty. 
This is the ground of meaning and hope in the world, and it is threatened by all that dark and all that cold. But it is preserved, in the dream anyway. That's the unsettling part about this scene. The last line of the film is, then I woke up. We're left wondering if any of that hope that we saw in his dream has any place in the real world of waking life. Are any of our hopes justified? The Coen brothers don't give us an answer. The scene goes black, and the credits roll. They leave that for us to decide. I get the sense that they're not holding out much hope, that they long for it to be true, for something to believe in and hope in, and that longing is what I love about their films. And it's what I think gestures at, or at least prepares the ground for grace. In the very first lesson of this series, we heard Mark Galley talking about grace in the terms of Karl Barth's language of the impossible possibility. He stressed that grace is never to be expected, that it breaks into a world so broken and lost that grace could never even be conceived of as a real possibility. This is the world the Cohen brothers give us. And they don't really have to try too hard to create it. They just have to be willing to look at it with open eyes and hold it up for us to see. Now that said, No Country for Last Men is not the last word. I want to turn now to a couple of films in which the Coen brothers do give us a glimpse of grace in a somewhat more positive fashion. There are rules. Now, it's hard to see, but this is a scene from The Big Lebowski, which is probably my favorite film, um, maybe of all time still. Um, We're not going to get into that one here for a number of reasons, but I had to get a few... I had to get a few scenes in. Um, I'll I'll just explain this, and and then we'll move on. The the two main characters, you've got the main character kind of in the middle there, sitting down, played by Jeff Bridges, calls himself the dude. And his best friend here is Walter, um, John Goodman, pointing a gun at this poor guy uh, on the other bowling team. The dude and Walter kind of represent their caricatures of the American political streams. You know, you've got the dude who's an ineffectual, washed-up hippie liberal who spends his days smoking pot and drinking white Russians, and Walter, who's sort of an arch-conservative, borderline, um, you know, just he's obsessed with his rights and the law. He's probably got a don't-tread-on-me sticker in the back of his car, you know. Um, And what's happened here is they're on this bowling team, and a gentleman on the other team has slipped over the foul line. And he's claiming that he didn't, and he wants to take the points, and Walter's having none of it. The scene escalates quite humorously. Uh, Walter pulls a firearm on him and is screaming, this is bowling. There are rules. (laughs) And you really do get the sense, if this guy doesn't back down, Walter will kill him. But there are rules. The law, or the rules, is a regular theme in the Coen Brothers films. We've seen it already in Fargo and No Country for Old Men. The main characters are some kind of law. We've got police officers. They love to cast characters in in police officer roles, or cowboys. They love cowboys. This theme of law comes through in in both those types of character. Um, And it's clear that the Coen Brothers view the law as necessary 
to curb evil and maintain order in society, but they are aware of its limits. And we saw that in No Country for Old Men, where the violence we encounter there seems completely immune to the influence of law. But in different ways, the last two films I want to take a look at this morning explore the limits of law. The 2009 film A Serious Man takes the book of Job and reimagines it set in the Coen brothers' own childhood home of the Minneapolis suburbs in the late 1960s. Larry Gopnik, who you see pictured here, played by Michael Stuhlberg, is a professor of mathematics whose life has taken an inexplicable turn for the worse. He's up for tenure, but someone keeps sending anonymous notes to the tenure board, questioning his character. His wife has announced that she wants to leave him for a family friend and fellow congregant at their synagogue. His idiot savant brother, who lives with him and his family, is getting in trouble with the law for counting cards in underground uh, underground blackjack rings. And finally, a foreign student who is failing his class is trying to bribe him and also threatening to sue him if he won't change his grade to a passing letter. All of this chaos is happening at once to a man who thrives on regularity and order. He is a mathematics professor. And while advanced math might be completely beyond the intellectual grasp of most people, it can be comprehended. It has rules that are regular, consistent. But life, as Larry is discovering, doesn't work that way. And he's exasperated as his life is falling apart all around him. He desperately wants it to all mean something. Surely this has to be happening for a reason. Is God trying to tell him something? So just as Job receives counsel from his three friends, Larry seeks the advice of three different rabbis. And I'm going to play a clip from his interview with the second rabbi. I've got to set it up a little bit, though. Uh, The rabbi has been telling a story to Larry about another congregant in their um, synagogue, this man is, is a dentist, and he had a very strange experience with, with one of his patients, a goy or you know, Gentile non-Jew. Um, he had to take a plaster mold, and when he's looking at the mold, he discovers on the back of his lower incisors a Hebrew phrase inscribed on the back of this man's teeth. And, and he's mystified by this. So he's, he checks it out, and it, it means, help me, save me. And so he's wondering, what you know? Does this guy need my help? What's going on here? You know, so he calls the guy back in, you know, under false pretenses. You know, I just need to check something out again. Checks it out live, and sure enough, on the back of his teeth, there's this inscription. He he doesn't know what to do. He's losing sleep over it. He consults the Kabbalah. He's doing numerological analysis. He's getting nowhere. So he goes to see the same rabbi that Larry has gone to see now. And that's where our scene kind of picks up. This is Sussman, the dentist. It's kind of a back-and-forth flashback kind of scene. You'll see. Tell me, Rabbi, what can such a sign mean? So, what did you tell him? Sussman? Yes. Is it relevant? Well, isn't that why you're telling me? Okay. Not, he says, look, the teeth, we don't know. Aside from Hashem, don't know. Helping others, 
couldn't hurt. No, no, but who put it there? Was it for him, Sussman, or for whoever found it, or for just... For, for, we can't know it? everything. It sounds like you don't know anything. Why even tell me the story? <laughs> First I should tell you, then I shouldn't. <laughs> what happened to Sussman? What would happen? Not much. He went back to work. For a while, he checked every patient's teeth for new messages. He didn't find any. In time, he found he stopped checking. He returned to life. These questions that are, that are bothering you, Larry, maybe they're like a toothache. Feel them for a while, then they go away. I don't want it to just go away. I want an answer. Sure. We all want the answer. Hashem doesn't owe us the answer, Larry. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. Why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? He hasn't told me. <laughs> Why does he make us feel the questions if he isn't going to give us the answers? I don't know about you, but I can certainly resonate with that frustration. Uh, now, this rabbi is not really very helpful for, for Larry, to, to say the least. Um, or at least he's not very pastorally sensitive. Um, but I think he does point Larry in the right direction. Doing good to others couldn't hurt. This is, after all, the second half of the summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the law here is both insufficient and the grace that is given, the grace that is going to have to be sufficient. Larry's not going to get the answers he seeks. The law is not going to tell us why all these things are happening to him. No law, no system, whether it's mathematics, philosophy, politics, or science, will be sufficient to that. As the rabbi says, God doesn't owe us an answer. He doesn't have to answer our questions. But... In his mercy, he has given us what we need. He doesn't always tell us why, but he tells us what to do. Love your neighbor. It's right there in Micah 6.8. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And that is a grace, even if it's not the grace we're looking for. It is a grace to know how then we ought to live. I'd like to close now by returning to where we began with true grit. Um, we heard in the monologue the basic outline. I know we had some technical trouble, but basically we've got a young girl, Maddie Ross. I think she's supposed to be 14 in the film. And she's seeking justice for the largely ignored murder of her father. The killer, Tom Cheney, has fled to the Choctaw Territory which is outside the jurisdiction of local law, so she's got to hire a U.S. Marshal to go out there and bring him in. She finds Rooster Cogburn, played by Jeff Bridges again, a man known for having grit, as they say in the town. Maddie agrees to pay him $50 up front and another 50 when Cheney has been brought to justice. The plot is pretty straightforward, but the symbolism is quite rich. Maddie, we soon discover is very precocious. 
She's a capable business and legal mind. This is from a very humorous scene in which she returns to the man who had just sold her late father 300 Mustang ponies and gets him to buy them all back, even though he does not want to. She gets to keep the saddle. It's a very, um, it's a great scene that, that showcases Maddie's ability with the law and just kind of with the system. You know, she's always threatening uh, to get her lawyer, Daggett, involved, who's going to come after you with a writ of Ripplevin. And I had to look that up. I have no idea what that is. Um, but it, what's that? Ripplevin. So she mispronounces it then, but the guy buys it and goes along with her scheme. So she's dropping... Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the point is she is very capable in society, working the system, whether it is the actual law or the business relationships that govern our lives. And Rooster Cogburn, on the other hand, ironically enough, given that he is a lawman, has a pretty slippery relationship with the law. We meet him in a courtroom. He's getting cross-examined by an attorney for uh, some men that ended up dead out in the territories who probably should have been brought in to face a jury of their peers. And he's tiptoeing his way around this cross-examination, um, conveniently forgetting things, not being clear on details, etc. He's clearly a fish out of water when he's back in society. But the film's action doesn't take place in town. It takes place in the territories, a place that is quite literally lawless. The rules don't apply here, and the roles are reversed for Maddie and Rooster. Here he is at home, while Maddie deals with the ever-growing fear that she has bitten off more than she can chew. But Maddie pursues her father's killer with a singleness of purpose that is borderline maniacal. Her zeal for justice has become indistinguishable from revenge. She finally catches up with Cheney, and she even has the satisfaction of firing the shot that kills him. But the kickback knocks her back into a pit, and her foot gets caught in some roots, and she can't get out. Rooster eventually arrives on the scene to help her, but not before she discovers a rattlesnake nest in the pit. One of the snakes wakes up and bites her on the hand. And as soon as Rooster gets her out, a race for Maddie's life ensues. They've got to ride back through all that territory, miles and miles to cover, to get her to the nearest outpost if she's going to have any chance of survival. And I want to play a clip from that desperate ride.
getting away. Who's getting away, Chris? Cheney. <laughs> hard to see, um, but essentially they're riding this horse to death. It's, it's their only shot of getting Maddie to where she needs to go, and it's getting tired, and Rooster pulls out his knife, and he's stabbing it to keep it going, and they just ride it to utter exhaustion, and it, you know, it expires. Well, it, it collapses under them, and Rooster kills it out of, out of mercy, but uh, this scene, to me, captures very powerfully the human condition. We are snake bit in a race against, or in a race with death, and we're fighting with our Savior over the terms of our salvation. We are delusional, thinking that the goal is finding justice for ourselves rather than let our, uh, letting ourselves be saved. Maddie has a hallucination while they're riding that Tom Cheney's getting away, the man she's just shot, The poison is doing its work. Our loves are disordered. There's nothing wrong with Maddie's love for little Blackie, her pony. And it's indeed very sad that her salvation will come at the cost of his life, but it is foolish to spare the life of the horse and lose the girl. We must subject our love of lesser goods to the love of the highest good. Rooster carries Maddie the rest of the way in his two arms. He gets her to the outpost, and they have to amputate her arm. He stays by her bedside until it's clear that she'll be okay, and then he moves on, and she never sees him again. We learn that though Maddie writes to Rooster and invites him to come by and collect the $50 she owes him, he never turns up. He saved her life, and it was an act of pure grace. We have here a story of a girl seeking revenge under the pretext of justice to the full extent of the law. But what she finds in the end is grace in a place outside the law's reach. It's not that she herself hasn't paid a price. She lost her arm, after all. But how did she lose it? It was ultimately the consequence of her act of vengeance, shooting Tom Cheney. In a sense, She paid for her sins, but her salvation was free. The film ends with an older Maddie Ross, who has just just missed seeing Rooster again before he died. She has his body moved to her family burial plot, and as she's walking away from the grave, the camera pulls out, and we finally get to hear that hymn that has been the film's theme throughout. 
leaning on the everlasting arms. She was saved in the two strong arms of Rooster Cogburn. She, on the other hand, now only has one arm. A reminder, perhaps, that the arm of the law is not as long as it might seem, and that it is, in any case, only half of the equation, if that even. It is insufficient without the longer, stronger arm of grace to carry us to salvation. And this scene also always reminds me of Matthew 18. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands to be thrown into the eternal fire. And with that, do we have time for any questions? Or is that a wrap? They appreciate Christianity in a way that a lot of non-Christian producers of you know cultural content don't. Um, it doesn't seem like they're on the brink of becoming Christians, but they they do appreciate the value of um, the religious worldview of, of almost any religion. They, they, they're attuned to how that works and they treat it with respect, but I think they find a resonance between their Jewish upbringing and Christianity, which, you know, I guess isn't surprising. Um, and I, I think they, I want to say they, they like the grace aspect of Christianity, um, that kind of counterbalances that more austere, um, vision you get from the rabbi. You know, Hashem doesn't owe us anything. You know, that's, that's true, you know, but, um, Christianity is going to counterbalance that a, a little bit more with a, a louder um, word in for grace. But um, I don't know if that, that answers your question, but yeah. Some others. Back here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think... Um, I think it's in Burn After Reading. It's been a while since I've seen Lady Killers, and that one's typically like relegated to the waste bin of not very good Coen Brothers movies. That doesn't mean it's not there. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to revisit that one. But um, we watched Burn After Reading recently, and there's um, it's it's interesting to watch again in this political climate. But at the very end, there's an expletive, you know, appealing to Jesus. And it's meant as an expletive, but it almost doubles as an exasperated prayer because this guy in the CIA has just encountered the most ridiculous um, string of events that didn't have to happen. And it was all based on um, lack of information, people thinking they had something that they didn't. It's, it's a really dark, tragic comedy. 
But that line at the end struck me as almost, it could double as a prayer. Like, where else are you going to turn in this situation? Um, so I, I think it is in, in that one, too. Yeah? Uh, how does the man who wasn't there fit in It's a good question. I have to admit I haven't seen all their films, and so that's one I, I don't know. Yeah? I think that they are haunted by nihilism at every turn and that they are trying to combat that in their art. Um, I think they draw on their Jewish background. I, I don't know to what extent they, they are observant. I think that's the only religious commitment they have, if any. Um, but I think throughout their films, there is that specter of nihilism that, um, that they're combating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things I like about their films is they're not heavy-handed. They don't try to tell you what to think. And I think they, they, would, they would... You could read the films very differently than I have read them. You could, you could read Fate Stronger Than Grace, you know, or, or um, Agency, you know, um, as a stronger or lesser role. You know, I, I think um, they they set all that up, and they create the tension, and they don't they don't want to tell you how to interpret it. They want you to walk away from having an experience of the human condition and dealing with it. Um, but yeah, that's definitely a theme as well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was hard, hard to see. A grace, a grace was offered you. Yes, yes. Well, and it, they put it in an extreme, right? They're not going to just, you know, use a, a subtle example. It's it's got to be very loud. So we're going to kill the horse, and it's going to be a tough thing to watch. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and that's you know they're they're giving us a sense of a time gone by too, where this is what you got to do. It's we're not going to make it to the outpost if this horse gives up on us, and it's starting to it's starting to slow down. It's getting exhausted, and so. He's got to keep it moving. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's hard. That's a world we no longer inhabit, uh, by and large. I mean, us here. But, um, I, you know, I, I think, it, you know, I, I think of Augustine and, and the ordered loves. It's not bad to love the things that we love. 
it becomes bad when we love them excessively. And, and that shows itself in situations like this where we have to choose between loves. And if we subject the love of the lower thing to the love of the higher, that's a sign that there's disorder. You know, even if it's a good thing to love. And Little Blackie's a wonderful horse. And they, they spend the movie showing how great this animal is just to kill it at the end, which is classic Cohen Brothers. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got to watch. That's again one I haven't uh, haven't seen. So I've got some homework to do for you guys too, I guess. Um, but that's interesting. You're, you're making me want to see that now. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a fantastic scene that I definitely want to follow up on. And it, so, it sounds classic Coen Brothers, you know, to work work with the absurd, too, to kind of um, make their point. Yeah, we've got to... Okay. Yeah. I guess I'm, I was just thinking about the, um, the scene with the horse, and it just seems to me that maybe, like, even with, like, childbearing, there's this kind of theme of in order for life to be passed... Yes. Yes. Yes, please do. Yeah, her performance of, of the, the hymn is well worth it. Thank you all very much.